0: You start speaking first. No, no, you don't. Go on. Go on, yeah. Whoa. Who started last time? I think you did. Wait, well, you your turn then. Go.
1: Hello, folks. Elijah Wood here. Andy circus here. Sean Astin bringing up the
2: rear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: For the cast audio commentary. Welcome back.
2: Welcome to the ongoing saga of The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers.
3: Yeah, I liked it in the uh, New York premiere when Peter walked on stage and said, "It's just imagine that the reels have just swapped over and there's been a bit of a gap in between, and, and uh, you know you just got your popcorn and you sat down again."
4: Exactly. You know, some people will get the DVD from the Fellowship and they'll watch that all the way through. The extended version stuff with the commentary. And then if they're really insane, they'll go right into the second DVD once that yeah, hits yeah. the street. Which, which most people are. God so bless them. I'd just like to say for those of you who aren't doing that, who are experiencing this for the first time, like it's okay. It'll be its own experience for you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, look. Thousands now. Oh, I, I thought, were you we supposed to be watching Raiders of the Lost
0: Ark? No, that was yesterday. Oh, okay. You missed that. John Rhys-Davis is in this as well, though. Is he? Yeah, he's very good. He's my favourite actor.
5: It's an extraordinary thing to get paid to do a movie like this, and just to be taken to such amazing locations.
6: That's one of the great joys of acting, you know, is you get to go someplace cool. I mean, how can you feel apprehensive about going to New Zealand? They have penguins there, for Christ's sake.
2: Lovely. New Zealand. Where was this, Bill?
0: I was just about to ask you, though. Right. I wonder where that is. Well, that must be the South Island. Do you think it's the Remarkables? Well, they don't look remarkable. But we did ski on that range called the Remarkables. Let's not say
2: skiing, though, because we didn't actually ski, did we? We snowboarded, which is miles cooler. This is good. I love what Pete did here. Yeah. It's a great thing that happened here, where Pete took the assumption that if you're watching the second movie, you will have seen the first movie, which I think is a good assumption to make.
3: Yeah. This sequence is phenomenal.
1: And a great overlap, you know? Really the only way that he did go back yeah. to catch people up, and it's perfect. And
0: then just a little memory here.
4: So, how do they do the whip? The whip is a complete CG oh. element. It's all animated, I'm Pretty I'm sure
3: it? it's called keyframe, that.
4: Yeah. So there's no practical element on the
3: whip itself? No, as far as I know. This is great.
2: This took us all by surprise, didn't it?
4: It, Completely. But it's perfect because it's right in the centre of the drama, but at the same time, it's it's a different part that you don't know... The different perspective
2: Because we had no idea what was going to happen here, and this was just incredible to watch at the cinema.
0: I remember saying when I saw The Fellowship that I thought that was the best opening sequence I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. And then I thought exactly the same when I saw this one.
2: Right. Fantastic. That would give me nightmares if I was less secure in my life.
0: Look at that, Don.
3: Oh, I love that shot. Suppose that you,
2: McKellen, really burnt his nasal hair in this scene.
0: Yeah. Luckily, he had a prosthetic nose on. It's the only thing that saved that, Don. Was he wearing prosthetic nasal hair as well? Yes. That's good.
2: This guy was a nightmare to work with the Balrog, he had a huge trailer, never came out, never bought around when we went to the bar, do you remember? Yeah, yeah. Burnley Hut.
4: Really rude.
0: I love this, I love this, Dom, I love this.
4: Grabs hold of his horn, nice curl there. The one thing I tell everyone when they say what an accomplishment, I just look at them and I say 500 days of miniatures photography. Yep. Yeah.
1: Five Aren't they, are they still
4: going? Look at that,
3: look at that.
4: I think they're still going with miniatures if I'm not I'm sure mistaken. they are. I mean, uh, well, I don't think people understand when you say 500 days It just sounds like a nice big round number, but like a, an abandoned paint factory with grown-ups with big miniatures for 500 days <laughs> of 8 to 12 hour days of you know, move the ship when we all to the go left. home, and you yeah. know, we're, we're, we're at doing
1: press for the movie they're still chomping away uh mm. uh-huh Oh, very interesting. This was cut out of the um, theatrical edition. Can you see
0: the bottom? I can see your bottom. <laughs> but that's what—that's a line I might have put in there, Dom.
2: You can always see Sean Astin's bottom. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. You're like an uncle to me. <laughs> oh. Ah, oh, he's dropped the bread. What is
0: it? Elijah get it. There.
2: See. Oh. Elijah is actually a very gifted one-hand catcher.
0: Yeah, and also can never hurt himself no matter where mm. he falls. He could have just jumped off that; he'd be fine.
2: Easy. This looks like a part of Manchester. <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's in this? No.
2: Marijuana. <laughs> just a bit of hmm. That's great. That's a great thing about Sam's character. Wherever he he is. He's always trying to get back to a hobbity nature. Yeah. Cooking and eating and, you know, the things that he holds and Sweet.
1: This scene actually was a, a new scene that we, scene we added. And, yeah, as as our luck always is, Sean, I uh, spent a couple of days filming
3: this, and it didn't end up in the theatrical edition. No. <laughs> but here it is. is. This is the first thing that you shot, wasn't it, when you got back?
1: One of the first things we yeah. shot, yeah. I'll tell you what, going back for The Two Towers... Was probably the most enjoyable time going back, because we did get to spend all that time with you, right. and I think we finally all got to connect on a level that we hadn't had a chance to it before. Was, it
3: was really kind of broken up before, wasn't it? I mean, cause it the, was. Cause well, your
1: time with all of the motion capturing, and it was such a pleasure actually this time around. The weird thing about it is it literally feels like you haven't left.
3: Yeah, 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 you yeah, know? yeah, I was, yeah for sure. And I'd never did, so there you go. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> True. <laughs> and also, we'd all got over the process of how we were doing it. During principle, when we first started working together, it was like, it was a bit of an unknown quantity. Really, Completely. Yeah. I'll never forget the uh, Yeah, and this the, time, the, time we, came, and th- we
4: came back for the reshoots, and there we were, we were dialed in, knew what, what we were doing. Really yeah. And also Peter and Fran and Philippa and Barry and everybody knew exactly what they wanted. Yeah. So there wasn't that kind of the managed the, the, chaos the, the, of yeah, like sure. seven units filming simultaneously yeah. on two different islands. And you were lucky if you just figured out what supposed to be on your back when you were getting out of the van to shoot another piece This was like really specific absolutely. scenes and
3: yeah, moments. I and mean, that's the joy of doing a film over that length of time, isn't it? That you can you know you can really start to hone in on the on the arcs of different arcs and really kind of pinpoint exactly where scenes need to go and, and the relationships. I mean all the rela- the rela- the d- dynamics of our relationship yep. of all our characters really came into place last year, didn't they? Mm. Yeah. You know I mean yeah. in a re- mm. in a major way. Yeah, absolutely. In a major way. The drama the real I mean, drama for the first time. For the we, first time yeah. our
4: relationship was solidified while filming rather than Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, in terms of of the drama yeah absolutely
0: yeah. I always felt sorry for uh, Sean having that bag all the time yeah when we all had like you know little bags with nothing in it yeah
1: what food have we got left Lambus oh,
4: spread. It was something
1: yeah, that they created. It was good.
4: It was crunchy and kind of powdery oh. in your mouth. It was pastor. dense.
1: I mean, it, it's funny because it actually was, in some ways, as dense as it's described. Thick, I had to a try it. Yeah, I yeah. it.
3: Yeah. In fact, I choked on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: it's easy to choke on it. Yeah. And hard to sort of act well. That, that's the thing as an actor, you need to eat food, and then be able to Act. swallow quickly and keep talking, or talk as... Like, Some
1: ac- actors love that, though. Yeah. Some actors use food as a prop. Yeah. But
4: I wouldn't say that on the continuum of stuffs that are easy to work with, that... Let's. Lembus bread is toward the easier <laughs> No, it's not exactly. <laughs> Especially if you
1: overcompensate and put too much in your mouth, yeah. it suddenly becomes a bit of a burden because it's so difficult to digest. Well, you so could do, do
4: the chipmunk thing. You know, I had quite large cheeks, so I would pack it back, and then I could just sort of store it there, finish the dialogue, and then over your line, I could swallow it. Yeah. Right. Well, the worst thing about the lembus bread, frankly, was pronouncing it the way Andrew, Jack, and Roshin Carter...
1: but I gave you an like endless coaches. amount of shit for that. Well, it's,
4: uh, you were right, to It spread. sounded weird. I mean...
1: They kept coming up to Sean and asking him to elongate the limbs The uh, lambsbread.
4: Well, the thing was, is we were out in the elements, <laughs> Uh-huh. and it was cold. <sighs> and by the end of the day, if you haven't been drinking a lot of water, your body's giving off a lot of heat. So you, when you get back to the Powderhorn Lodge where we stayed, uh, at God this, bless the Powderhorn. God yeah, bless, right. the bless the Powderhorn. I love that place. Your skin is like there's windburn. So people are <laughs> tired at the end of a day, but. At the Powderhorn, there was this kind of Camp Good Times feel to it where <laughs> everyone so would gather so in, true. in the room and the, the dailies Camp was Good set Times. up. And Peter, who would shoot a lot of takes, that wasn't a sort of reflection on the fact that you were sucking or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's Christopher Lee and I talked about it too. He's like, I, I at take four, I thought, my God, what have I done wrong? I, I, I got that I could feeling do it too. Better. Well, everybody was piped up. We had the pizza and we'd watched a couple rolls of this and it was, look at the beautiful thing and wow, it's fun to be and together. All of a but a sudden now the, we're getting tired. T- Endless takes of La- La- bread
3: this was the first major two towers scene that we did i think and it was the first time we really established the motion control with the camera and mm-hmm. re- doing the scenes and shooting them and working it up discussing the scenes acting them out and then reshooting one with me on camera one with me off camera all that this was kind of really the first sort of stuff and and actually what they went for in the end were the plates. Obviously because there's such a lot of interaction here. They rotoscope painted frame by frame over a lot of this. Then you got all the interaction like with that cloak when, when yeah. Gollum spins round. So they painted over you. Yeah, they literally frame by frame. I mean, they're amazing. And that is painstaking work. And they just did an incredible job. We must have done that fight about yeah. 30 times that day. Do you remember? Oh, yeah.
4: I'm really happy with how it turned out because I remember when Peter was originally describing Gollum, he was ascribing certain kind of, not supernatural, but kind of anti-
3: Gravitational. <laughs> gravitational
4: properties to Gollum. Like he could flip over the back. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't want it to look, look superhuman. That
3: was something I was always kind of bashed on about was the, the kind of the weight of Gollum's movement. You know, you wanted to see the pain and, and the cost and effort of the way that he moved so that he wasn't supernatural. That he yeah. wasn't Spider-Man. You know, you could see those muscles really get under a lot of strain, you know, as he crawls over the rocks.
1: You're an absolutely blessing to that character, though. The journey that you had bringing this thing to life, not only physically, but in terms of all of the meetings that you took, you know, the character development that you did with the animators, it's just, oh,
4: it's a marvel, Andy. Well, so it's ironic a, that you're paying him that compliment really while we're watching this scene. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was so funny because during this, I so remember the first few days of filming oh, with dear. you guys, yeah. and we were like, "There's me looking at you, and you're all in your makeup and your hobbit feet and looking real, and there's this guy <laughs> crawling around in a spandex white in suit, feeling really like a bit of a dickhead." Well, also, and, we had you
4: know. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a dickhead. We had been doing it for so long, yeah, yeah. That I, I think I had gotten, by degrees, complacent. Or relaxed
3: with myself. And, well, you reach and, a
4: plateau.
1: I well, you've think. been
3: doing it a long time. Also, you've been through the whole fellowship because you guys had done like four months before I, I arrived, so you'd all bonded and you all the hobbits. But have really you can't.
4: To, you got off the plane. I mean, you had this kind of raw intensity that was frankly terrifying because when we do these fight scenes you were like really into rock climbing at that point and i was like fat mushy soft boy right and so we're doing these things and then i just remember elijah and i had reached the sort of giggles point is where we had snapped and you were just starting to want to get into the intensity of it but uh, but totally understandable
2: it's very brave of pete to very quickly introduce Gollum in complete daylight, you know, in the first scene you see him in, kind of dark, so you're not really mm. sure, but now you see him with all his warts and all. Yeah. But it must be a bit of a nightmare for Andy because for the rest of his life now, to prove that he is Gollum, he has to do the voice, you know, with Billy and I, we just kind of say, yeah, you know, I'm Merry I'm and he's Pippin, and they get it by looking at our faces, but Andy has to do the voice, which must really get him
5: down. <sighs> He's a wonderful character. I mean, it is a gift of a character to play. I love it. Any extreme character like that is just an actor's dream, an actor's gift. And when you ally it to this remarkable technical step forward that they've done, where the human body is taken and digitalized and enhanced, it's a hybrid character. It isn't really a human performance. And it isn't really a cartoon character. It's a new chimera. You can't really recognise it because it isn't really an actor's performance. And yet, unquestionably, an actor had a major part of it or in it. It's just one of those things that we will probably see more of in the future because of it. It's just a groundbreaking and breathtaking piece of, of combination of technology and acting that I think is just so remarkable. You've been there before. It's great. He's got so much going
2: on, Garland. Sometimes he looks old, sometimes he looks young, sometimes he looks like a dog, sometimes he looks like a frog, sometimes he looks like a monkey, sometimes he looks like a bus. A bus? Sometimes a bus. Hmm.
4: You will lead us to the Black Gate. After reading the books three times and making the movies and seeing all the illustrations and and being there for a year and a half, I understood the story to a certain extent. But then after watching Fellowship of the Ring in the theatre, Twelve times, sure. and seeing it on DVD two or three times, and doing the commentary, and going to the award shows, and reading articles, and talking about it in the pu- and I mean, I learned as much about the character dur- doing the publicity yeah, yeah, yeah. as weird, I did during the filming. Yes, so then, to true, have all of true. that kind of new level awareness brought to bear on the pickups helped. Just goes to show you how much time you
1: really do need to get involved in this. Yeah, it's, sure. it's that dense and that multi-layered. And
3: it's really weird. I mean, for me, because you, you guys had all all been through that entire process on fellowship. You know, the whole opening of it, the whole success of it, the whole, yep. you know, all, mm. all the way the pu- public responded to it and everything. And so, but for me, I was waiting for Two Towers to come up as kind of like the first, mm. the first time that Gollum really, and here he is, the first time is. that Gollum, you know, kind of makes his, uh, you know, makes his appearance. And what majorly?
1: And what a debut, my friend. <laughs>
3: This is where the
2: magic really begins, though. I mean, as far as a start to a movie, this is really where it... I mean, this is just absolute cinema genius.
0: These two um, stuntmen had oversized urukai costumes on and a huge oversized head with, you know, the face and stuff behind the mask. And they were able to take off the head between takes. And we stood on a box, they put the head on, and then our arms were tied together, so we had to kind of lasso our arms over their heads, and then they carried us for a couple of hundred yards or whatever it was during that take. But the urukai costume is like got tons of kind of spikes and stuff mm-hmm. on it, so trying to find somewhere you could put your legs and be comfortable was like really yeah.
2: difficult. Yeah, and trying to lock your arms because their shoulders are oversized. Their shoulders are probably four or five foot across, so you like. You know, you're trying to strain to link your arms together. And like Billy said, you're tied by the wrist. So it's kind of uncomfy for us, but must have been a nightmare for them because these are normal-sized guys who were giving piggybacks to normal-sized guys maybe 10, 15 times in a row. The evil oak liquor, which Pete Jackson gleefully showed me before chucking it down my throat, was a mixture of glycerin to make it kind of gloopy and thick and grape juice you know anything to kind of make it glutinous and pete wanted me to be unconscious as it's poured into my mouth so it all kind of fills up in my mouth and i don't swallow it and it drips down my chin and would go down into my uh neck and through my shirt and all that stuff which after you know four or five takes of doing it did do that and uh i'm wearing this cape this elvish cape which i was allergic to terribly allergic to
0: Cause a lot of problems. Pete used to love that as well, didn't he? That was a good cape. fun day
2: He used to take the mickey out of me because I was allergic to my cape. But,
0: um. <laughs> Before yeah. I take it, say, now everyone ready? Has uh, Dom got his cape on? <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that was fun. I mean, it's kind of no acting required, really, when someone pours juice down your neck and you have to pretend to throw up, you know? It's good.
0: See, a lot of people think that Pippin threw that down, you know? To let Aragorn know where they were and you know they were still alive. It's so actually it was just chafing his neck.
5: All right. <laughs> that is Aragorn, the once and future king, in a way. And that's the immortal elf, Legolas. And this, this is the hero we've all been waiting for. Well, it's one of my abiding memories, sitting halfway up a mountain, watching two men carry the armor up in a big hamper between them, and two more men carrying the swords and the costume, and somebody from the wardrobe department carefully carrying these heavy boots up the hill for me, somebody carrying the helmet up. That weighed about 14 pounds as well. And then they put all this stuff that would jointly weigh about 60 or 70, or sometimes 80 pounds, depending on which axes we had, of extra weight on me. And then Peter Jackson said, now run up the mountain.
7: There were the three of us, Vigo, Brett Beattie, the double, and myself. Brett is Gimli's scale, as John's kind of right-hand man, really, for the most part, you know. I mean, John is the face and physical being of Gimli, but Brett really, because he was his scale double, had to kind of mimic John's movement and be there and sort of assume a lot of what John was trying to do with Gimli so that, you know, he could make it look believable as the double, you know. You know, Aragorn's—you know—he's in the lead and he's the—he's the tracker. But Legolas isn't supposed to feel tired. He doesn't get tired. Elves don't feel cold. They don't get tired. So, it's supposed to look really easy for me. But Vigo was so fit and healthy and stuff. I mean, he's like—I'm 20 years young. His junior, old. Oh, no, 10 years or whatever. But like. I'm supposed to be the young, agile one and there we were sprinting off and I was like racing to try and keep up with him and we were like in this sort of little race thing and at one point he just, he was like, look man, it's not a race and I was like, I know, I know, but it's sort of, you know what I mean, it was like this and then, and then I had to keep turning around because Brett was like keeping up the rear, you know, it was, but, and he was doing a great job, I mean with all that armour on it was just ridiculous, but we had so much fun doing that stuff, it was hilarious, it was this little competition, running race.
8: I don't think that Saruman quite realises that Sauron is always one step ahead. Well, I think he thinks he is. And he, of course, pretends to be the servant of Sauron as part of the deception. Sauron quite obviously sees through this. After all, he's got a big enough eye to do so.
0: They actually uh, trained four million ants, dressed them all in Urukai uniform and got them all in March in time. Right. Which, you know, is amazing. Well,
2: I mean incredible because ants have six legs and they agreed to have four of their legs taken out for this
0: movie. Which, you know, shows the sort of passion and commitment. And also their antennas.
2: (laughs) Yes. So they used to find food, they were taken out as well.
0: I love this because, as Dom and I have spoken about quite a lot, one of the main themes that we love in the two towers is the environmental themes that Tolkien was writing about and the, the destruction of trees for industry and even worse for weapons War, yeah is you know Tolkien was saying was so wrong in the 1940s and yet we're still doing it now mm-hmm. and uh, I think that shot where you see the tree being ripped down and thrown into um, isengard just sums it up in one kind of
2: yeah that this is what you sacrifice for war? Yeah, the natural just seeing that sacrifice. beautiful
0: tree tumbling down into the fire.
2: Yeah. Although what a beautiful sword they made. <laughs>
8: <laughs> this particular scene is not in the theatrical version, probably because, to the best of my recollection, you don't see the orcs going out and burning down part of the forest. He has this hatred for nature, Which, again, is never entirely explained. But at some point, he obviously decides that everything has to go.
0: So that scene totally explains that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. We don't have enough weapons. Get rid of the forests. Yeah. I think everyone watching this should just take a moment, pause it, and just think about that.
2: Yeah, everyone watching this should have a responsibility to either plant three plants or one tree that's a great idea if you have a garden plant a tree you don't have a garden then pop three plants on your windowsill. do that you'll be doing a lot yeah
8: this terrible cloud this dark dark cloud which is in effect Saruman hangs over the entire film somebody once said to me well there isn't a great deal of you in the second film and I said well no some of it's been uh, been cut as happens to every actor some of it I very much regret I said, no, no, there isn't a great deal of me talking and, you know, as much as there was in the first film, where you are establishing the character more. But everybody who said that to me has said, but the shadow of Saruman looms over everything that is happening throughout the entire film. This dark menace, as somebody put it, this this awful cloud, because they talk about Saruman's forces, Saruman's armies. Solomon wants this, Solomon wants that. Solomon is going to do this, Solomon is going to do that. They talk about the character all the time and from time to time you see him. So he's an invisible presence on occasions, but just the same, immensely powerful. I, I love this stuff. I it's absolutely amazing, love it. Oh, amazing. is that a new
3: That's shot? It, yeah, it is, yeah.
2: For the Rohan to see all these horses dead is terrible because he really they really look after their horses. They hold a lot of uh, respect for their horses.
1: Mm. Anything more with him is always a good thing. He's so good.
9: He's excellent, he's fantastic.
1: And a lovely man as well.
9: The shooting experience was so eclectic. Some days you would wake up at 4 in the morning, go and hop into a small Cessna plane at 5 or 6, fly over Lake Wanaka Wanaka, to the far side, land on a small sheep paddock, hop on a four-wheel drive and drive 15 minutes into the bush to get into makeup and wardrobe. You know, that was quite a typical experience. I mean, that was the thing. They would actually spend the budget of an average New Zealand film to build a road to get somewhere or fly the cast and crew in there. And again, that makes it that much easier. It's much easier having all those elements at your disposal than standing on a green screen stage. There was this mini-mountain, on top of which they'd built Edoras. It was just the most spectacular set I think I've ever seen, without a doubt.
10: This was one of the first scenes that we shot at the Edoras location, and then this scene inside was shot about three months later. The one on the outside, the the main thing I can remember was that um, there was so much wind, I had to be careful that my dress didn't blow up all the time, because all you could see was my socks.
9: The Golden Hall was just phenomenal. And to see all the sort of Roheric myths and legends, it's just a sort of a testament to the skill and dedication of the craftsmen and all the people involved that they went that extra distance to fully realize the vision of what Tolkien had written.
11: That's some total of nine hours, the hands and the hair and, the, and all the makeup. I had contact lenses in to make my eyes look more opaque, more kind of old and weary and stuff, but they just didn't happen very much wasn't quite enough, so they had to digitalize some effect. These were actually a lot more fun to act than a
6: lot of the stuff I did in the Orthanc Chamber because these were real scenes with conflicts. The other ones were much more about exposition and very tough. And, and I, Some of them I shot at the very beginning when my accent wasn't so hot and Fran called me back and said, you're a little accent-driven, which was quite right, I was. I fortunately was able to fix some of that in post.
10: All these scenes have been dubbed because our accents were originally a little different in the beginning. We had a slightly more Irish sound. That got changed when we came back into the studio later on.
6: These were the first scenes that I felt happy with that I did. At one point I felt like it was the first time I really made Peter happy. There was one time he walked away sort of gleefully, mumbling, yeah, yes, that was, that was nasty. He was, oh, <laughs> I mean, was quite happy. And that was a good day. It was a fun day. And it was also the first time I worked with Miranda, who I just think she's the best. Extraordinary actress.
10: I love Wormtongue. I always love working with Brad. I just love his complete commitment to that character. His nose and eyes used to run all the time. Just so into it. And I end up sort of feeling a little bit sorry for Wormtongue. He obviously has some feeling for Aowen, no matter how sort of strange and perverted it is. I sort of feel sorry for him when he looks across at me. Eowyn doesn't feel sorry for him, but I do.
6: This is a scene with Carl, when we were shooting this the first time he was just about to have a baby. He wanted to stay and shoot with me, and, and I told him to get the heck out of here, that we were only making a movie, and he was having a baby, and go
9: away, and I'll, I'll handle my stuff fine. I loved working with Brad Dourif, so giving as an actor. You probably hear that term, of you know, such a giving actor, da-da-da, but I really sort of respected and appreciated his time and energy. He's really good. He
6: was really strong. Actually, everybody, this is a really well-cast movie. I mean, and uh, very much of an ensemble, and everybody was uh, extremely easy to work with. I know that's boring and and not good copy, but you guys are just going to have to sleep through that remark.
2: I've looked on freeze frame, and you can't see any one of those uruk carrying Mary and Pippin. Are you sure? Yeah, whether Mary and Pippin are um, tied up in a sack or something like that.
7: Here's an example of where New Zealand is just the perfect place for lord of the rings this countryside this landscape was just awe-inspiring it felt so unique it felt so ancient it was like something left over by the ice age It, it really just looked like the land had just been scarred and these rocks it was like the whole landscape had had a huge glacier running over it and these rocks had just been left these huge boulders perfect for rings i mean it's as depicted by tolkien
2: remember this shot Everybody had to sleep over at the location so that they could right. get up in the morning and shoot at something like 10 to 5 in the morning. W- which means, yeah,
7: make up at 3 or something. Yeah. We all just sat around drinking five New Zealand wine and listening to music until the sun came up and then sort of stumbled into our make-up and shot
0: as the sun came up. And here's a little technical thing about this scene is that this has been flipped.
2: Yeah, right to left Because left.
0: I crawled the other way when we shot that. And I don't know why they do things like that, but they do. I don't know why they flip
2: things, either. This would be all studio work. Yeah. It was a fantastic set, actually. This was, um, this was a really long day, I remember. Here's an interesting point for you out there, all you viewers, all you listeners, I should say. Well, listeners and viewers. The voices of the uruk in this particular scene here, are mastered by Andrew Circus,
0: the same Andrew Circus who plays Gollum.
2: Do you Go- mean Gollum, and Smeagol. Yeah, isn't that incredible?
3: That uh, is incredible. I actually did voice uh, three of the characters in this in these scenes. <laughs> did <laughs> you? The
8: Oaks, yeah. Oh, we ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. We haven't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking
3: days. Oh, geez, <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, so that's that, all It was quite you? funny because at one point I was playing like a scene with three characters, just me doing all the voices. It was really oh, good that's fun. so cool. It was really good fun. Fresh. Oh, they look fresh and all that. All right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, that's awesome. And you just start making oh, up all awesome. these. Oh, that's awesome. Characters.
4: But that maggot eating bread stuff, I mean, that bugged the heck out of me because I kept thinking, like, Pete, come on, man, we're not in brain, Dead*. What are we doing here? This is Lord of the Rings, Maggot
1: eating bread. you I, it, I, I loved
8: it. It's break. great. Free free. Oh. alive and unspoiled.
2: That is incredible. They wanted a kind of Cockney London accent for the uh, or okay So Andy stepped in. why they didn't ask me. I can do it. Fucking
0: brilliant, man. Mary and know I've never had anything like this or I could imagine anything as horrible as this.
2: Might be a, a huge factor of how Mary and Pippin got through this trauma is that they just couldn't understand what was happening to them you know? yeah like yeah Billy, just like Billy said they've never been through anything like this before so they just they're just in complete ignorance you know.
0: And do you remember when we filmed this, that head coming off wasn't supposed to happen yeah it was just like supposed to be stabbed or something yeah and then Pete on the day thought It'd be great if he just got his head cut off yeah well, and then th- all the wetter people went mad and went great and God kind of sorted out how the blood would come out and- yeah
2: I remember thinking at that point this must have been like what it was like when they were filming all those you know brain dead and yeah meet the feebles and all that kind of thing because he loves gore he loves blood and that day he was, you know, he said, oh, come on, we'll, we'll cut his head off and we'll have a load of blood shooting out.
1: Yeah. I think Pete gets excited when he, can, when he can include blood in his movies, just from the old zombie films. Yeah.
2: You know, that really is a soft spot for Pete. He loves anything kind of disgusting and gory. And I suppose like little boys. Little boys love blood and gore and guts and snot and all that kind of yucky stuff.
0: Remember filming this stuff? This was um, it was great, really exciting because I mean these horses were galloping through like three feet from where we were. It really got your kind of <laughs> really adrenaline got your, up.
2: Got your attention,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was easy to focus that day. Yeah.
2: I think it's always nice that no matter what Legolas is going through, he always has fantastic hair. Very important. Whether he rubs grass on it or gives himself a little conditioner at the end of the night, you know, some hot oil or something like that. I really enjoy Aragorn's story in the second movie. Well, in the entire trilogy, I think it's probably my favourite evolution of uh, character. But in the second movie, you see him really starting to take control of his destiny. You know, like in this situation, quite a scary situation.
5: You can see that he thinks that he can deal with this situation. All mass scenes are difficult for directors because you have so much coverage that you need to do. I mean, look at those amazing spear angles and things like that. The problem is not for the actor. Oh, you know, acting's really very easy after a while. Uh, all you have to do is just use your imagination and think. When I'm in the scene like that, I think as Gimli would think because I have done my preparation like any good actor there. I'm in the, ce- in the scene. I am not going to give away to these rather tall people and their rather frightening horses, but at the same time I do realise that uh, I could end up dead and we could all end up dead.
2: I love Eomer's armour. Very cool. Yeah. You can tell by the look of that helmet that it's really, really hard, can't you?
9: Mm-hmm. I would cut off your head, dwarf. I kind of see the role of Eomer in The Two Towers as a man who is at a, sort of polarised by the events that are happening in his country. And ultimately, frustrated by the king's inability to do anything about it. The border regions are under attack by the Urukai, by Saruman, and uh, Ayoma knows this and is, is trying to prove this to the king, but the king's not doing anything about it, which forces Ayama to essentially make a decision either to, to go and, and help the people or to be loyal to his king, who's saying, don't worry about it. And he chooses the people. And I, I certainly think that uh, a lot of the material that I got to uh, to play with in the film. You know, of all of it, perhaps the most sort of gutsy and intense, you know, interactions with other characters for me uh, happens in The Two Towers. Uh, you know, if you have a look at the confrontation with, with Wormtongue or when Naima surrounds Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, they're quite, you know, highly charged scenes. Uh, and with Theoden as well, there's a lot riding. The stakes are high. I, and I always felt that one of the, sort of the keynotes that was resonating through my head when I was doing uh, was doing the character of Ama was that my people were out there dying while I was talking while I was trying to convince Théoden or dealing with Wormtongue or even Aragorn Legolas and Gimli that at the time was was a factor that there's people my countrymen are out there dying and you know I'm the only one who's essentially trying to do anything about it so that was there was a I think a sort of a feeling of immediacy that I was sort of playing with. The stakes were high. Oh, sorry.
2: It's always interesting when you're on set with a lot of horses. You just have to be a little awesome. bit more concentrated because the most sensitive thing going on is the horses.
9: To me, I think the horse element was probably one of the most rewarding about the whole shoot because I really enjoyed working with The animals and I think one of the things about my job that I really enjoy is being able to constantly acquire new skills and for Lord of the Rings it was sword fighting and horse riding. You invested a lot of time and energy into getting to the level of competence that I felt the character needed to be and uh, sometimes it was difficult working with them because they don't always do what uh, you want them to do you know if you want them to stop on a mark that's like that big A lot of the time they do it, but sometimes they've got different ideas or they'll get disturbed by flags that are flapping in the wind or lights or sounds. So you constantly had to be sensitive and aware of what your horse was doing. And again, you know, we were fortunate. We had a great team of horse wranglers there to help out on the day. So you try and keep your voice down,
2: you try and do what you're supposed to do. I mean, the horses that they use were absolutely incredible, but even so, you just have to be a little bit more
0: and, it's, you know, you've just got to kind of trust, basically.
2: One of my particular favourite pieces in the movie, coming up here, where Vigo screams. Yeah. just... He just absolutely nails it. I don't know if it was in the script or not. <laughs> Ugh, just... Since she was dumb as fine, well done, Vigo. Give it a kiss.
0: I love this as well. I love the way Pete... Like, if the story's going in a kind of linear fashion and you're kind of, you know, enjoying it. And then he'll he'll tell the story in a completely different way, like this flashback here and how Aragorn's kind of... I just love all that. Yeah. It just makes it such a kind of movie experience rather than anything else, you know?
2: Yeah. Aragorn can tell all this because he's a tracker. He was brought up by the elves, and the elves taught him how to track.
0: It's actually quite touching,
2: not how you feel, Bill, Mm. to see your friends upset about thinking that you've died. Yeah, because
0: you'll never really see that in real life. No.
4: I love the fact that Peter isn't bogged down in a commitment to the classic presentation of it, that he can also have fun with it. I think yeah, that's yeah. really absolutely. Important.
1: He does have his own voice within, and it, it does work within the fabric of the story. But he's still able to have his own voice, which I love. He's true to himself.
0: Here's a little thing about this scene. We shot this next part pretty much on a blue screen. Mm-hmm. So... As you can see, we're running through a a horse's legs there. And of course, me and Dom can't run through a horse's legs because we're far too big. They filmed that shot without us there. And then they rebuilt the actual shape of the surface that we're running on in a blue screen studio. So it was a hill, but it was completely blue. And there was marks all over the floor. As they ran back that Actual piece of film that they've got there. The camera made exactly the same move, and then we had to get to the place where the horse would be and run under its legs. When on the blue screen stage, there was absolutely nothing there. Nothing.
2: Fangorn.
0: So as you can see, how it pans out in um,
2: in the movie and in the book, they kind of enter Fangorn Forest just because there's nowhere else for them to go. I think if it was daytime and they could make a decision. They probably wouldn't go to Fangorn Forest, mm. but they're being chased, they're in danger, they're just trying to get away, really. You know, it's a very foreboding place, Fangorn Forest, even though Treebeard is one of the good guys. I love this shot here, I don't know why, this close-up shot when the camera pushes in and we think we're safe and then suddenly we're not.
0: I remember this was in a studio as well, and Pete was just like, run like you're going to die, guys. Yeah. Remember this? When it-
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember Pete's kids turning up that day, and we went playing with them in the forest. Do you remember? That's right. And yeah. Doing stepping stones and jumping over the
0: water and stuff like that it was great fun. This was great, learning How to climbed this tree? Yeah. This tree beard tree.
2: Our first interaction with tree beard. Yeah. He's gone. I actually kicked that guy in the face for real. Stephen Sinclair, he was called. I kicked him in the face and he wasn't that happy. I did apologise.
0: I remember in that shot there where I first see tree beard. We did it a few times where it was just a kind of turn and seeing its eyes open up and kind of being shocked by it. And then very near the end of doing takes, I said to Pete, do you mind if I try a double take here? I'm so glad they went for it because seeing a tree open its eyes would take a second or two to take it. What is happening?
5: Yeah. When Peter asked me to do it, I said, yes, of course, I'd do the voice of Treebeard. I didn't realize what a risk we were taking. You know, on a page, a walking, talking tree works on the imagination. And my own thought was, God, this is instantly risible. We are going to see this and laugh, and it's going to destroy any semblance of belief that we have in the film. I mean, how does an ent talk? I mean, it has no lungs. One of the things I was trying to suggest with putting the inhale in a way in the wrong point in sentences. Actually trying to create the sense of speaking on the inhale rather than just the exhale so that it would be, We just
12: lost
8: the end because
5: <clears throat> Because nobody's on my side,
8: little
2: orc now this shot here is computer-generated but when it goes back to a close-up shot this we are in Treebeard's hands this yeah Yeah. they built a 20-foot high moving walking talking animatronic basically a big Muppet you know so he was there and we could interact with him there was a performance
0: which worked absolutely fantastic and then made it much easier to do those scenes but very nice of them they make two of the most uncomfortable chairs ever invented. Yeah, weren't we sitting on backward bicycle seats? <laughs> <laughs> at, at a 45-degree angle.
2: Yeah. seems that wetter have no concept of men having testicles. And yeah. by the end of the shoot, I had no concept of men having testicles because they went internal.
0: Like a sumo wrestle? Had to be coaxed out. It was amazing. You could actually kick Dom in the groin at tremendous force. In fact, I got Salah to do it once, and uh, still, uh, no pain?
2: Nothing. I just didn't feel it. Sorry, man. This is a great little tweak here by Pete. You know, yeah. who is this? Well, it's We've a... already heard about the white wizard from um, Irma.
3: This was the first shot I think I ever did on the movie. Up in rupay That was the yeah. first time. There's a big blue screen, do you remember, just behind all that with no Mordor in the background. <laughs> <laughs> it was just well, like...
4: Well, not covering up the whole vista, but just covering up the part where but,
3: your body yeah, was. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: As you can see, everybody's off on their own story. So you've got Elijah and Sean and Andy spending a lot of time with each other and then Oli and Vigo and John Reese davies and then Billy and myself, which is something that we all went through just thinking about because we'd been so close to each other and working together every day that it actually did affect us quite a lot when we all split up.
3: Did you get to know people like Brad and people who weren't in our storylines? Because people mm. say, God, you, you spent a lot of time with Ian McKellen and Blubber blah blah and Orlando. And, and I kind of go, well, no, I, I spent all my time with Large and But You know, yeah. it's a difficult yep. one for people to get their heads around, I think. I mean, although obviously off the times of the day when we're not shooting, etc. Well, there was the Four Hobbits, obviously. Yeah. You spent a lot of time together. But yeah. did you get to know Brad? Did you get to know... I I you know? think
4: it's like Not as pilots. well as others. To me, like if you think of fighter pilots, they see each other at the aircraft carrier and then they're and then they're out there doing their doing thing. Their and you can sort of appreciate the
3: the the kind of maneuvers that are going on
4: and you get a sense of knowing each other but like the real work you're doing you're doing on your own or away from each other this was filmed in a parking lot that's right all the grass has been set on top of the asphalt folks were a little bit more lo fi than you think yeah (laughs) it just goes to show you you can have great imagination without great expense I don't think this particular If you took this shot in of itself not a very difficult thing well, maybe with the CG elements in
3: there. Uh, now, this worm was a, this was actually a twelve foot, a twelve foot gelatin worm. Gelatin worm. F- that you inch, nearly choked inch on. Inch I did. Hey, there's limber spread. There's oh, limber spread. But I mean, you talk about difficulty in eating limber spread. I mean, this this worm you was like I swallowed it. it and darn my golem. <laughs> I thought you were choking on it at one point. I know, and then that was. Uh, I mean, the golem voice kind of you know. Because you were
4: doing all that coughing and choking while right. you I was really worried that you were going to choke. Actually.
3: That's right. <laughs> that was a massive worm.
4: Look how fat I am.
1: Yeah, you're getting ready to put the weight back on, Sean? We'll oh,
3: yeah. <laughs>
4: look
1: at
3: you. Yeah, you look
4: I know. <laughs> I've lost 30. Like, from that moment, <laughs> I think I've probably Sean, lost 40 pounds.
1: That is beautiful.
0: People, so, people say, why did you do it? I said, because Tolkien wrote it that way. Sam, why Gamgee? Andy will probably hate this, but sometimes it looks really like Andy, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Just certain good. things that Gollum does, and you go, yeah, yeah. So like Andy. Ugh. Oh.
4: That's the other thing that I was struck by, which people will get the benefit of if they're watching the additional footage on the DVD, they'll get to see your face and stuff, but the one thing that I was struck with when I watched the movie and saw Gollum was how it looked like you. Yeah. How much it looked like you. So much like you. In the facial expression, in the bottom, like how much they captured yeah. the performance that you gave.
2: And also, Gollum quite looks like Frodo, doesn't
0: Mmm,
3: I love that. Mm.
0: You kind of see what Frodo might become. Yeah.
3: People have said to me, they've said, "God, Elijah begins to look more and more like God oh, as, that's the, great. as the film See, goes I, on." You know,
0: I have very little
1: perspective on that.
3: And also, people say that I do look like an older version of you. I mean, I mean, kind of obviously more rattled, not quite handsome. But I mean, hey, wow. you know, there is a real, there is a connection. I oh, look, maybe that's Peter, obviously somewhere, sort of, sort amazing.
4: You know? Maybe in the bone. Of I'm the, so, so the, glad in that the, that's, in the, that's in coming across. The bridge of your nose and in your eyes a little. But Definitely. it's true.
3: It's certainly true. It's certainly. I mean, certainly those. The way that you choose to play Frodo later on. And I love, I mean, that's really clever. Your, your choice is there to, to bring that in. Oh, thank you. Really clever.
4: Believe- oh, these,
3: these are cool. Me Look at well.
4: this. Is that just layered? No, they're no, actually. They were, in there. They they were bodies. In the- oh, those were guys they, in there. That's the right. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Genome made them.
4: I think we must have shot this scene about seven different ways. That's right. This was shot over ages and ages, ages and ages. I remember we yeah. shot a bit down by the
3: docks. Do you remember? You yeah. looking up yeah. and, and you yeah. falling in. Yeah, that, yeah, and was...
4: yeah. And then we go out in the parking lot. Oh, then go out different and and we came back to it in the parking lot several times. That's
6: right. There were things that haunt me and probably will haunt me till the day I die that I had never seen before. The strongest of which is the dead marshes. My understanding is that description really came from Tolkien's experiences in World War I. Places where bombs went off, uh, these little craters would fill up with water, and there were dead soldiers underwater with their eyes open looking up at you under the water, looking almost alive. And that's a very, very eerie feeling because you get both tragedy and, and yet something kind of spooky in it as well. I mean, all this waste of youth. There is something, I mean, incredibly wasteful about war.
4: I can't believe how well you did that thing, Elijah, where you just fall face first. That- yeah, because it was only like... A foot and a half deep, the water. So it's possible that with that pack on your back, and you would have so cold. and bone chillingly cold. Oh, yeah. But you it's oh. possible that you could have not just suffered the sting on your face from the splat of the water, but that you would have actually hit the cement right. bedding. Because it was the, yeah, it was only about under, a it was foot only feet. about a foot deep, foot and a half deeps, and you just yeah, psh, yeah. you just yeah. fall right over, and it looks so yeah. creepy. <laughs> it is creepy. We originally
1: had it you pulling me out, but then then we changed it. We changed it to Gollum, which is so much better. Yeah,
3: and also is, is a mirror to the scene we've just seen. That's right. Which is kind of Frodo it's better because you know Sam's going to pull them out any time,
4: of course. But the fact that Gollum is—it's well, it's establishing
1: their the, connection, the connection. Yeah, exactly.
3: which I love. A lot of attention on Gollum has been about the process of making Gollum, but what what isn't cannot be stated strongly enough is the fact of the quality of the writing because without Absolutely. you know without that Ooh. as the backbone of the whole thing none of it would mean anything and it would and the character would have just remained a, a sort of a gimmick Two really. and it's a really, really complicated thing, thing to do like with. how
4: do you keep the, the tension and the drama and the kind of pace going while also celebrating the poetry yeah. the language touching the tendril stops of the different...
1: And developing this character, you know, which
4: they did so well. I mean, it really is a combination
1: of so many elements, but definitely the writing. I remember the first time I saw this film, and it's always always such a a nerve-wracking experience to see it laid down the first time, and it's overwhelming because there's so many things coming at you, and it's such a dense part of the story. Well, each part of the story is dense. But with Gollum, I just remember the relief of feeling so emotionally attached to the mm. character as a viewer, as an audience member, mm. and really feeling horrible for him. Mm. And I was so struck and relieved that I did, that I made yeah. that connection. Yeah.
3: I think that was always Peter's from the get-go, like you said. I mean, Peter, Fran, Philippa, and myself as well. We, I think we all really believed that you couldn't write him off as a one-dimensional, you can't. evil, snivelling wretch. And thank God we all had that. Desire to make in that way, otherwise, you would have been bored in two seconds of yeah. it, you know. Yeah, everybody, everybody worked on that. I mean, watching that film for the first time, I felt exactly the same thing that the gut. Audience response to Gollum was kind of quite amazing, really. That yeah. they, they, they didn't sort of just kind of celebrate the technology; that they just kind of were amazingly drawn in. You know, and I've had loads, loads of response of people saying, you know, yeah. he's flawed like me, and all this kind of stuff. Wonderful. You know, and, and, and that's that's the greatest reward that we've had. I think that with this yeah. character is that people take him seriously, as a real screen character, and, yep. and a kind of emblematic of who and how people attach themselves
1: to and him. the flaws of human beings. Yeah. And- yeah yeah absolutely
3: and through something so extreme looking yeah that you can recognize yourself in something so extreme looking isn't that beautiful
4: I know it's so cool I found through the the publicity process and through watching the films and reading the books and everything just rediscovering my own sense of human philosophy or something or being reminded of lessons my father would try and teach me about how you can have an impact on somebody else based on how you treat them or that people will respond and yeah and seeing those ideas and teased out in the relationship so there's all the kind of obvious things to latch on to but when those ideas and the the currency of human emotion come through it allows you to feel deeply which is really what is possible with movies
3: yes yeah
4: I had the sense from the very get-go that even though, you know, Peter was committed to delivering the film on budget and on schedule and did so, he absolutely retains that authorial commitment. Yeah. And not just for himself, but for all of the creative entities involved. And it makes me want to, whenever he wants me to do something, want to give him whatever he needs.
5: I think, actually, Peter sort of supervised everything. Even if he wasn't actually on the set at the same time, there would be a relay, and he'd be watching what you were doing, even if he was some distance away. I don't recall any second-unit work that I did that was an exterior that Peter wasn't physically on the set, though. With I don't know how he did it. He just stretched himself. I mean we'd sometimes have eight units going all together I mean he was just constantly moving I don't know where he gets the energy and enthusiasm from where the complete patience and uh, and strength of judgment he didn't seem to me he seemed to me almost inexhaustible uh, when we were shooting just extraordinary
2: and anger John was allergic to the makeup that he wore in his face I'm sure that most people watching this know that because in every single interview he tells people but um, what a nightmare that must have been for him. I think for John it wasn't easy
7: he had problems with the makeup as well and he's a big man just the weight of all that armor and everything else that was involved for his costume I think it was difficult but it's funny when you see the movie you would never know that it was Brett Beatty doing the running over John. I mean, that's a credit to both of them, really, because of the way they work together, you know, and the way that Brett kind of moulded into John's kind of physical language. And, you know, we had a good time with John. He was always amusing, and he'd come in for his close-up, and ready for my close-up sort of thing, and he'd do a great job. He's a scene-stealer in that respect, you know. I mean, he's a fantastic actor, so it was like just point the camera at him and it sort of worked. And even with all that makeup on and all that prosthetic and stuff, you could see John Rhys-Davies through all of that in a big way. So I
8: think that's just a credit to him as well. They start talking about having seen a figure in white in the forest. Who is it? Well, the only figure they've ever seen in white, of course, or know of in white, is Solomon. So they've got to be on their guard. It's a kind of a, almost a cloud around him. Of brightness, it's almost angelic, and that's my voice. Deliberate, it's Gandalf deliberately using my voice to test them, because they think that it is Saruman. Well, of course it isn't. It's Gandalf the White, reborn after his battle with the Balrog. But in order to add this degree of uncertainty and to make it slightly chilling, they very sensibly, I thought, decided that when he does speak, right at the beginning, he uses my voice. Now, I don't recall deliberately trying to deliver a line like Ian, but somebody did say, one or two people did say, you know, you sound exactly like him.
5: There's that slight distancing. It's like it's, it's like seeing an old friend again who's had a stroke. And, you know, his reaction to you is, is different because of his physical experience. But he changes his memory of, of, of encountering us obviously comes back the more he's with us and very quickly he almost becomes his old self again but as i say in this new gandalf's a good deal more grumpy than the old one i did read one criticism that in fact gandalf was not grumpy enough well it's all a question of balance you know what works in a book and what works in a film are very different things
1: I really found this movie to be, in some ways, more of a fantasy film than the Number first two? movie. Yeah. I would have said the opposite. Yeah. See, I've... But I think with when those When you're watching those, those moments, those touches, you just wanted at, yeah. But there are quite a lot of moments like that. Like, when he calls his horse for the first time. Yeah. Just Yeah. Slight, yeah. very subtle, yeah. but I think in some ways, it had more fantastical elements. Still rooted in that reality, but Purely
4: imaginative. Yeah. Like... Which that, I, I loved. That almost, uh, Maxfield Parrish, is that a... Uh, yeah like that kind of thing sort of yeah Yeah, that quality that sort of surreal imaginative thing but then for me the overriding feeling that I had kind of walking out of the movie was like wow we spent so much more time with the world of men with humans yeah Yeah. this is like a war this is this like Patton or Lawrence of Arabia or something It's like you know this is a war movie
1: I love the fact that Gimli has really I mean, he's a much stronger character in this movie, and yeah. credit to John Rhys Davies and to the writing as well, because they they picked out some really great comedy moments in this film. Yeah. Well, I think that, he, that that he strikes the really well. exact
4: right tone oh, between oh, sure. comic relief without compromising the kind of That's right. inherent dramatic tension that, Indeed. if you relinquish it, you might not get it back.
5: Yep. I think there's something intrinsically funny about Gimli. I mean, I, I think the great secret about Gimli is that he doesn't realize he's small. As far as he's concerned, he is a hero among heroes, (laughs) you know. It's just occasionally that it's brought to his notice that he may not quite be as tall, that his legs may not be quite as long. And this is a tough film for him because, A, he's got to run for days keeping up with these long-legged creatures. He is intrinsically, I think, humorous because he has a great sense of his own personal worth and dignity. And we needed that. I mean, this is really unleavened darkness and gloom. I mean, if you, were, if you were asked to paraphrase what happens in Lord of the Rings, you know, things are going well and there are nice people having a nice time and then evil looms and things start to look bad. And then and there's a big council meeting, and we realize that things could get really bad. And then we go off, and there's a skirmish, and things look bad. And then we go off again, and we have another battle, and things get really bad. And then we have yet another battle, and then things get really, really bad. It goes on like that. We need a leavening of of humor. We cannot just simply have an arc of rising tension without some you know, some shape to it, and in some way, Gimli's function is is to earth things out. But at the same time, there's got to be a constant level of grimness and determination. But I like the humour in in him. To come straight out of school
7: and to step into an arena where I'm working alongside the likes of Ian McKellen, I mean Sir Ian McKellen, excuse me. It was more than a privilege. It was it was an education that that I will carry with me forever. I mean, this is the guy who leads the pack in terms of the presence on the stage. He's um, you know, Gandalf, uh, Gandhi. He would be. all of those elements that he was in the character, you know, I mean, you'd see him in the morning and he was grumpy old Gandy. He'd come in and... and kind of, really like, you know, he just hated getting up. He's not a morning person. I'm not a morning person. Nobody... Let's face it, not many people are. But it was so funny and I'd kind of poke him and jest with him in the mornings just to wind him up. He'd quite tactfully and uh, dutifully bat me away with, like, one whip of a comment that I'd just go...
12: Ooh.
7: He's the wise old wizard of the of the fellowship, and he uh, he brought that to the company of actors. You know, he brought that element.
5: As a young actor, that was it was great. The animators did watch some of what I did prior to actually filling in the details of the character, and they were kind enough to say that the performance in the soundstage helped them find the the movement and sound and. and character and excitement and enthusiasm, and I think that that was one of the things everyone got excited by what everybody else was doing. Sometimes they would watch me in the sound booth or they would tape what I was doing in the sound booth and then play it back to them and it helped them find some of the mechanical motions.
0: I love seeing all those trees, Mm. beautiful. So
2: this is New Zealand, you know if you ever need a reason to, uh, to travel to New Zealand this is a huge part of the land.
0: Yeah. And if you ever need a reason to save forests, yeah.
2: This was quite a lovely touch here. You know, Treebeard, in his very nature, is very, very slow. Everything he does is very slow, and the hobbits are quite fast. So even though they really enjoy his company and they're in in a real element of safety, they can't help the fact that
0: they're quite bored. <laughs> <laughs> Because, I mean, yeah, I think it's great because, you know, Hobbits are all about poetry and song and having a good time. Yeah, entertaining so, each other. Yeah, so they're really kind of at home here, I think, the Hobbits, and, and I think it's great that you see that they're starting to kind of trust Treebeard and getting to know him, but, yeah, on top of that, it's not going fast enough for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, as Treebeard says later on in, in the film, it takes Ents a long time to say anything, you know, Look how comfy they are, it's great. Now when we get dropped down here, we're actually on wires. And you'll see me do something quite weird with my hand here and then there. That comes from watching babies when they get moved when they're asleep. Because when Pete was telling us about this, he said, you are in the most beautiful sleep and you're being placed down on the most soft blanket and you're just in absolute bliss. Whenever I see babies get moved, they do this little spasm thing with their hands where everything goes kind of tight for a while, and then they relax again. So I did that. I remember going over to Pete and telling him why I did that, and he giggled and and laughed and and thought it was good, so... There you go, Billy.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much, Dump.
12: This
2: is new.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, very nice.
0: I love when you see these extended versions. It just explains it, doesn't it? Just yeah. a bit more.
1: I think and I and I felt this way with the the extended version of the first movie that these moments actually help to make the movie a more complete story.
3: Yeah, sure.
1: It it, it includes elements of the books that were left out for the theatrical release that I I completely understand why they weren't included in the theatrical, but as a fan of the books, and just as a fan of film in general it, it helps to make a more complete full-bodied story i certainly understand the reasons for trimming you know for the theatrical
4: it's peter and newline's genius to service each audience in a way that is most meaningful to the audience absolutely and the thing that just makes me giddy with appreciation is the fact that peter was capable of doing all of that simultaneously without compromising any one of them. It's It's, it's wild. Gandalf is almost
1: a narrative character. It, It pushes the narrative of the story along. And as a guide well, for everyone it to say, else, suffice say,
4: he bears the weight of his responsibility with total.
1: No, absolutely, and I and I think that that was an added challenge that we never had to come in contact no. with. he almost sort of speaks the story at certain points, and that's a real challenge as yeah. an actor because there's no. Well, emotion several characters do it at different
4: it. times. I mean, Galadriel does it in, sure. in narration over the prologue, yeah. which is so such sure. a stunning way to introduce the movies, and then.
1: But he's the one character that consistently does it throughout yeah. each chapter. Yeah. You yeah. know.
4: Ian has such a kind of command of his own acting instrument because of his age and because of the quality of his the tenor of his voice and and, and also the, this, who he is as a person I and mean, I feel yeah. he embodies those elements anyway. Yeah. is amazing. These, straight, straight, out, of straight out of the cover of the Alan episode. Lee's illustrations from the cover of the book.
1: I see I love how prevalent Alan Lee's work is in this film. And in the first, I mean it it, it some of these
4: major grand shots are literally taken from Well Peter would have a large uh, Version of the sketch of the or of the illustration brought to set and would pose us, yeah, exactly like the characters were depicted from Alan Lee's imagination.
3: Exactly like when Frodo's holding Sting. That's right. And, this is and so And holding cool. Gollum's head back and I've yeah. got my legs wrapped yeah. right around you. That's yeah. exactly how. On that was our first introduction we, scene together. Yeah.
4: He literally brought a drawing onto set and we copied it. He, copied he it. yeah. He said, "Oh, now you move your arm a little to the left and you move your arm a little to the right." That's the image. If you own the combination series, that last yeah. Oh, these are great! This sort of uh, South Asian.
3: We've got to just pay, pay some respect to sound here. I mean, just the weight of the movie. So much of the yeah. weight of the movie is yes. carried through sound I, and yeah, the 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 it editing toss. and the the, con- yeah, the, the sound of their of their, of it.
4: their growling or oh, of the Balrog's howl or of the the horn, the richness of the horn. Yeah, it's, it's just
3: phenomenal. It's
4: so true. The layers of elements. Yeah. Both the, the sort of twenty-five layers of sound elements and the fifteen layers of visual elements that go. Yeah into that one sequence. You just... I also love this movie
1: for its connection to men and to humans and really getting behind that. And I was so impressed with how much it makes you get behind that emotionally. Yeah. That's one of the movie's greatest achievements.
4: Well, it's one of Tolkien's greatest achievements. The fact that this guy was, was able to construct a narrative and create characters that would allow these profound human truths and realities and dynamics to resonate with a re- with readers over time what a colossal achievement for oh, this man massive yeah massive oh, and all the actors and everyone at every level the layers of truth as you interpret them and in service of Peter's vision of how to adapt that work, I mean, it's uh, what—it's a, a great thing. It's a great. Th- I mean, it's been long enough now. I've been away from this for months and months and months and months now. That I come back to it, and I just—it strikes me sitting here that uh, it's pretty. It's pretty grateful. I should be pretty grateful for being able to be involved.
1: In it. We all should. Absolutely. Soldiers do wear eyeliner. I just wanted to they point do. that out. <laughs> they do.
3: easterlings particularly. We had this scene coming up where it was on a day, was on a day where, uh, but, well, I can I'll do, it. On, let do it. it, let me do You're it, it. You're let, me do it. Let, let me do me it. You were on a racquetball court, let me just point that yeah. Out. yeah, and we'd return... Tennis,
4: co- tennis court in in uh, Queenstown. In Queenstown. Queenstown. On one day, but then we were in a rock court. And, see, that's the thing that people we might not appreciate. Even like, fellow actors might not appreciate. We would film a portion of a sequence with dialogue, sort of Elijah's coverage, Elijah's close-ups... On A Thursday in June and then we'd come back to do the other side like the Andy side or the Sean side of our close-ups Six months later. Yeah, okay. So here we were in Queenstown and it was a wet weather day That's right. So it was wet weather the, cover the day, wet yeah. weather cover meaning if it's raining outside We'll go to the tennis court and they'll put up some polystyrene rocks and we'll shoot close-ups <laughs> of our emotional sequence so this scene right now it was that. Yeah, that exact that right there pullback. when when Andy grabbed my head, you grabbed the hood and and my and hood and my wig got caught up in your hand and you ripped No, no, let, let me finish this. I Go want on. to tell the story. You <laughs> ripped the wig straight <laughs> off my head and I'll tell you what, it didn't really hurt that much. No. But I was so frustrated about something else about the dynamic of working with Peter on that given day or something else that that having the glue around the forehead and down to the ears and having the pins in there ripped out from the base of it gave me the perfect excuse to allow myself to just be abject frustrated. And what needed to happen, I didn't storm off in anger. The fact was I needed to go back to the makeup bus to have them reapply the wig because they couldn't do it in that room because there wasn't enough light. Right. So there was no kind of love loss at the moment. I decided I'm going to allow myself to be as angry as I feel right now <laughs> for whatever reason, as fat and frustrated, and I'm going to just walk to the makeup bus, and that's it. And I just stormed to the makeup bus so that I could get back quickly, professionalism intact the whole time. And when I came back, you took that as though I was angry <laughs> I at this you. That is the
3: worst hissy fit I've <laughs> yeah. ever seen. You in thought my that I was angry <laughs> at
4: you for having pulled the wig off. I, at, I swear to you, I promise you, in that moment. I was completely accepting of the fact that it was an accident and I didn't mind it. I was venting my frustration about a dynamic with Peter. It was a
1: difficult day, just period. I think it was a difficult day in terms of really hammering down the emotional intensity of the scene. I think Peter had a difficult time trying to impart that onto us. Yeah. So there was a lot of miscommunication, a lot of unclear elements as to where the scene was going. And then that coupled with you know the wig coming off and it being a technical thing and losing the momentum of the scene at the, i mean it was just a Plus, whole variety nice.
4: of things Plus, i'm not sure exactly what day of the week or month or how, how many months into it was but i was
5: exhausted <laughs> i was tired <laughs> the scale and size of these sets were just incredible and you can't tell where we're moving from a miniature into green screen and just it's flawless To make it flawless, that's the real major achievement, and make it seamless.
2: So, this is a completely new section, and as we were just instructed, one of the biggest things to be added to the uh, extended version of the. something that Billy and I fought for.
0: I didn't pay for it, (coughs) didn't you?
2: I really fought for it. (laughs) Filmed in a studio. Just a lovely little nuance with the hobbits here. You see Merry and Pippin really behaving as hobbits, you know, enjoying each other's company, kind of winding each other up, behaving like children almost, you know.
0: Yeah, and some of my favourite stuff from the movie is when it gives a nod to Tolkien and stuff that doesn't have to be in the movie, like the Entraft, and that the hobbits grow, and Merry and Pippin become the tallest hobbits ever because of this um, Entraft, and I think that's great. But it's in the extended version compared to the Urukai's draft that you had at the start of the movie. Now we've got this draft. I'm the
2: tall one. You're the short one. That's a nice little nod to you know how Billy and I are perceived by the media. The tall one and the short one. No one can
0: tell the difference between Don Monaghan and Billy Boyd. Or even more so at that time um, when we were making the movie, it was just the crew. Mm. Nobody knew who was Billy and who was Dom. The Ent Draft, as Billy was saying, it's kind of a tonic that the ants
2: drink to, um, you know, make them feel better. It's got a lot of nutrients in there, like an old, an old kind of drink that, that is passed down through generations that Pippi manages to get hold of. This was fun. This was all kind of rubber roots that would grab around us and then they poured a load of leaves on top of us.
0: This tree, although it all moved, it wasn't through kind of mechanics. It was just guys moving it with sticks and stuff so it was really kind of what you'd expect the old B-movies to be like yeah great fun and good that these who runs this the sort of evil side of the trees waking up is back in
2: yeah the balance with good there's bad and with light there's dark you know
0: one of the reasons why people were up in arms about Tom Bombadil not being in is I think that people recognise that that character which I think in a lot of ways is shown in Treebeard as someone who's been around that long that something that's happening over 50 or 100 years doesn't really matter. So whether Sauron gets into power or if it's Aragon, it's of no real significance on the huge painting that they live in kind of thing. I think it's really important to show Treebeard saying it's not affecting us so therefore it doesn't matter. And I think it's really important for The Hobbits to say, yes, it does. Will you stop eating (laughs) while I'm trying to say something? I'm really hungry. (laughs) I I think it's really important to show that. And I think, therefore, that Treebeard does become, in some ways, the storytelling thing that... Uh, Tom Bombadil was. The person who's been around so long, and that's shown by I can't remember what the Entwives look like. I've been around that long, so why should I worry about a small battle in, in this minuscule moment of time? And it takes the Hobbits to show that the kind of domino effect of that and what could happen.
2: Probably some of the maddest sections in the whole book, I think, where Treebird is explaining to the Hobbits about the Entwives. It's just complete lunacy you know the yeah. fact that he doesn't even know what they look like anymore i mean they must look kind of like ants a little bit
0: you, you would not think more than like a tiger
2: that's tree all over you know he's just he's incredibly wise but some things he just can't work out he needs the hobbits around to try and make things a bit more clearer for him Do they look like? are you mad at
0: me no i'm not mad <laughs> i'm disappointed with you I, c- I could never stay mad at you <laughs>
11: And there's the first view that the audience gets of Edoras. It was a real place. I remember Dan Hanna showed me some stuff, some film that he'd taken, some panoramic stuff of the, of the work in development, that he, stuff that you're taking for Pete to have a look at, just to show work in progress on Edoras. Uh, Philippa and Franz showed it to me and they said, look at this, this is what we got. This is your kingdom. And it, it was just extraordinary. Was just amazing shots. This is the Golden Hall. And that's a hand which took an hour to do the makeup she's stroking it, I was thinking, deep down, I I thinking, oh, man, just be careful of the makeup. I don't have to go through all that again.
10: In this scene, originally, I was telling Theoden that Theodred was extremely ill, and I was asking him to go to him, basically, before he died. But then they moved it forward in the film, and um, we post-sunk the dialogue and changed it to that he was already dead, because it, it just all became less confusing. Do
5: not look for welcome just here. breathtakingly beautiful. I'm sure that most of the people of New Zealand have never seen that place. It takes hours to get there.
10: This is probably one of my favourite Eowyn scenes. I love this opening line of Brad's. I think he plays this so well, this feigned surprise. It was actually a really meaty scene to play and you, you don't actually get that many meaty scenes in a really big film like this with so many characters. So it was actually fun to just be... Pretty much one-on-one with someone with a bit of dialogue and a lot to play.
6: The day we shot this scene, we were inside of a, a studio that was really a shed covered with corrugated uh, metal. And the wind was howling through there. I mean, I stopped takes because I just couldn't concentrate because it's just too loud. But to give you the kind of concentration Miranda Otto has, she doesn't even remember that. She was so inside this scene.
11: Miranda gives absolutely everything to her role. She gives more than she should sometimes. She kind of has no kind of reserve. She just kind of goes for it. It's wonderful to act with. And great comes over great on the screen. But it must be exhausting to keep that level of concentration. These two together, the combination of these two levels of talent and levels of concentration is extraordinary.
10: I was interested in this scene, just to make it that you didn't really know where it would go. Obviously, she loathes him, but I liked the idea that, that as he had some power over Theoden, perhaps the way that he speaks, that in some way he is a, a seducer, he is somebody who is able to sort of tell people lies and make them to believe what's not true. I like the idea that for a moment she's sort of taken in by him. I think she's someone who's extremely lonely and the kingdom has fallen into such a terrible state that very few people understand her or or know what she's going through and, and Theoden's under this terrible spell and so she doesn't really know what's going on and when he sort of speaks to her in that way, I think for a moment she's sort of taken in by him but then she just completely pulls herself out of it. This was the very first scene that we shot at Ederis. This was the first of the new-look Eowyn. We shot some Eowyn earlier in the year at Helm's Deep and we had different hair and it was quite different looking, but this was the new-look Eowyn when we started. It was extremely windy. I think the wind was about 80 knots and it was impossible to keep the wig off your face. There wasn't actually anyone to look at on the day. There was just sort of eyeline. These scenes were shot entirely separately with Vigo and Ian and Orlando. So I didn't get to look at gorgeous Aragon when I was doing that. I think that's a terrific shot. I love that because then you can actually see how big it is. You can see what the eight months' work that went into it meant. So now you have a real eterus There's no mistaking that. That's not a painting.
7: I remember walking up the banks towards the first tier of gates at Edoras and walking alongside Pete and I was like, well, fairly large set, Pete. And he was just like, (laughs) you know you're on a boy's movie when you walk onto a location like this. (laughs) I mean, it was huge, it was so, so big. It was as if the land had kind of lended itself for that moment in time for Lord of the Rings. There was this build-up, this kind of mound in the middle of this plains. And from every aspect, you had snow-capped mountains. It was by far the most dramatic of all the locations that we were on.
10: It was a fantastic set. It was quite incredible. It was, I mean, it's a great thing, I think, for an actor, not to just have to imagine that, not to be standing in front of a blue screen trying to imagine what Edoras would be, to actually have it all built. I always feel sorry for John in those shots, because I always know that John's shots, he mainly shot on his own. Most of his dialogue was shot on different days in different locations um, pretending as if he's talking to all the other characters he does it extremely well I don't know many people who would be able to do that it was a very lonely experience I think for him
5: Again, breathtaking and beautiful. And I, I dare say it's all had to be ripped down now because I've got an idea it was in trust land or area of natural beauty, so the whole thing had to be demolished. But it, again, every detail of the set, the way it was constructed, that you could put a camera on any part of it and it, it wouldn't show that it was just basically propped up
6: here and there. It's just amazing. There's this odd thing about being conscious of things and unconscious. And when you are doing an accent, when you first do it you're very conscious of it and i i do them 24 7 in other words i do an english accent all the time
11: brad spoke in in an, an english accent from the very first moment i met him He's a real kind of strong method actor. It wasn't until almost towards the end of filming, when he felt confident about the fact he could slip in and out of it, that he had very little to do, that he started speaking in his normal accent, his normal voice, which is an American. And it sounded such a cod American accent. It sounded really false. But he was wonderful to work with. Right? He really threw himself into this role. Man as a hatter, but he's a fantastic guy.
6: I wake up in the morning, I, you know, my poor girlfriend, and everybody's put through an English. That's the way I talk and I don't leave the English accent. That was particularly important for this character because he thinks a lot, he's very much in his head, and there's a kind of way that that English people use language and certain rhythms that have to do with the way they think about things. So it was really important that I practice that, I think, for me, but until things kind of slip into your unconscious, it's just a little calculated and, and not great acting. Not that it ever was great acting, but it, it's not as good as I, I can do it.
8: Helpless old king, Theoden. And he looks about 300 years old. You know, He's under my spell through worm tongue. And I've possessed his spirit as a wizard. I've taken him over. And when he speaks, as this very old, worn out... It's my voice, the defiance of Gandalf. That's my voice. And it's perfectly logical because I've taken him over.
5: And that extraordinary moment where Gandalf the White displays his new-form power.
10: It's great how Gandalf the White is so different to Gandalf the Grey.
11: From this point onwards, I was very aware that Christopher Lee would have to be coming out of me at some point. So everything I do from now on has got a, a little tick towards how Christopher Lee might want to perform it, which wasn't wasn't difficult on some levels, but on other levels, it was really bloody hard because uh, I'd got a tape of Christopher Lee doing a voiceover. At one point, we were, gonna, we were gonna have the tape playing and I would mime to the tape, if you like, but that just proved too difficult. With all this makeup on and all the acting I needed to go through, it was a lot easier to do it the right, way around we did it, which was me performing it and then Christopher Lee put in his voice over my mouth. He kind of overdubbed me. And the first time I saw it was, there's me speaking Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee's such a movie icon. Having his voice coming out of my mouth was quite a privilege, really. People seeing the film were asking me about what it was like, and I seemed to go through several stages. And I said, well, I played like three kings in this, I suppose. This is King Lear. This is now going back into King Henry V, I suppose. This was
6: amazing on film. This thing right here, look at that. I mean, it's seamless. You don't know when it's happening, really. I mean, it just doesn't look like an effect, but somehow this guy is just transforming in front of your eyes. It's kind of, really kind of a beautiful, magical thing. And of course, Miranda sells in with this smile and, the, and that extraordinary look. It's just about as well done as it could be.
10: When I look at it, I always wish there was less crying, generally from Eowen, but um, that's just how it went on the day.
11: This transformation is absolutely brilliant. Everybody i spoke spoken to, people in the business and people who saw it who are, not, who are not in the business, were just stunned by the transformation there. I don't think it's ever been done so brilliantly before. It was just a remarkable piece of morphing. They probably invented some, wrote some program to do it in such a way. Extraordinary piece of work. It was good to get the makeup off, I have to say. But the process by which we did that was in four stages. We did the old makeup and then we did to clean makeup, then we did two different stages of it. And then I had to act my performance against a reflective screen to match it so they could morph it and overlap it whenever they liked. They could develop the different stages of transformation in a way that they wanted. This is a nice scene, this, pulling that sword out. And that sword is really, really heavy. That's the hero's sword. It was a wonderful feeling just to get the sword in your hand and kind of feel the weight of it. I really felt like I was a rejuvenated Theoden at this point. Trying not to go cross-eyed, looking at the sword, that was the key, to look beyond the sword, not at the sword, because you do go cross-eyed.
6: Bernard just really nailed this guy. He had a lot of ideas and a
11: lot of... Um,
6: uh, he contributed a great
11: deal, I think, in his performance. And that was... Well, I could lie and say that was Bad Dourif doing... But he wasn't, as was a stuntman. And there's King Lear. This is my King Lear bit.
6: I felt like I did good work in this scene. And I think part of it was because of what a magical place and, and where I was. And, and everybody was affected like that.
11: I don't know if we can see the feet, we probably can just in passing, but there's a big debate as to how, what would he have on his feet? At one point we we're going to have boots, leather boots, and I said, well, if you think about old people, they don't have things that are difficult to take off and put on, especially by their carers. So I said, we have to have something that's going to be easily... Oh, they got that in this bit, good. Because that's not in the film, I don't know why that wasn't in the film good taste, bad taste, I suppose. But the, um, we, I came up with the idea, I said, well, let's just bind the feet with animal fur, with rabbit skins. So we did. And that was a very convenient way of getting around that knotty problem of, of looking after Theodore and who looked after him. He'd have to have people kind of taking him, putting him to bed and stuff like that.
5: These temporary little sets that were built for maybe two weeks' work altogether, three weeks' work, months' work, and just Any theatre in the world would give their eye teeth for the attention to detail. And all to be thrown away, all to be pulled down and destroyed. Just amazing. I mean, you would want to live in this uh, this set. I mean, the the designers just did such an incredible job.
10: This funeral scene was sort of in and out and in and out, and then eventually was out of the film. I can see why it was out of the film, because at this stage, it was sort of hard to put in something that was quite a long section when the film has to be cut down. But it was a very beautiful shot. I think that shot down the top, not this one, but the one before where he's travelling down is very beautiful.
11: This was a very, very moving day. I mean, Miranda was just setting everybody off. I'm glad this is in. At first, this was a speech, a poem that she spoke. And then they set it to music, and it just changed everything so wonderfully well.
10: For a while, this chanting that we did on the day, it was done at a different speed, I think, of films. Then we changed this all into a song.
11: But it's all about the grief and the loss of loved ones and the loss of heirs, and things like that. I had always a problem because never, you never see this father and son relationship which is a very difficult thing to take away for an audience and still feel sympathy. So there was other things that we put in. This is a lovely scene with Ian McKellen and myself. Symbol Muna. Symbal Muna. The dialect coaches were very keen to, um, to make me say that properly, not moon, Muna, symbol Muna.
10: I remember Bernard working on this scene the night before, I think he only got this scene like the day before. And I remember him talking to Philippa, one of the writers, I think it was Philippa, about changing the order of a couple of the lines to make it flow better for him. There was a lot of things on this shoot where he'd receive the pages the day before and have a bit of a meeting over dinner about how to do the scene and then we'd be shooting it the next day.
11: The line that no parent should have to bury their child, a lady came up to me and said that to me because her daughter had been killed in a terrorist attack in Northern Ireland. I think I was in Glasgow at the time, and I'd just done a series that kind of lit off, and it was all about my character was involved with children and stuff like that, and trying to keep hold of his children. And this woman came up to me and, and said her daughter had died, and how awful it was, and she felt sympathy with the character because she'd lost a daughter, and so. And then she turned to me and she said, no parents should have to bury their child. And it just lodged in me so strongly, I thought at some point I'd have to share this with people. And afterwards, when we did the scene, Pete, and Pete said, I don't want you to show emotion through the line. He said, I want you to feel that you're holding on and holding on, holding hard onto your kind of royal presence. And that when you say the line, that's what sets you off. It's the saying of the line that makes you break down. You don't say the line because you've broken down, which was a wonderful way of doing it, because it meant that the whole thing had a kind of tempo to it. And then on the wider shot, he said, I want you to be more active. I want you to show more grief physically. I wanted to see more of the kind of, to and fro the, the body moving more. And it just felt so wrong. And it wasn't until I saw it put together that I realised that Pete is just a consummate filmmaker... ...because he knew exactly what shots he was going to have.
10: This was another one of being given some lines the night before. Morning. They were unarmed. Now the wild men are moving through the Westfall. Those lines originally belonged to someone else in the scene and then they were changed.
11: This is the beginning of the very careful plotting, which in some ways is better now because we've got more time to do it. But we had to trim so many different areas out of the film that some of the, the stages of Theoden's recovery... Because if you've been ill... Now, this is, this is a look here. I just hope that people realise what that is. Because that's what Wormtongue used to do. He's used to put his, his hand on my arm. There's a sense that Theoden still doesn't trust Gandalf. Am I being manipulated again? which just reinforces his reticence about doing what they want to do. It's the idea that, that when you've been ill and, and, and you go through those different stages of recovery, you're never quite as bright and as sharp and as, and as adventurous and as heroic as you would be if you were in complete perfect health. And it's those stages that we had to plot very carefully through the whole film, because if suddenly the recovery was too steep, it wouldn't make much sense. If it was slow, it would be boring.
12: Whether you would risk it on not.
11: Vigo took the character very much on board, and he called me king all the time. I used to call him Assumptive, King Assumptive or something like that. And during that bit, he presented this line, and and then I put him down. And you could see him visibly kind of wilt underneath it. There was some acting as well as actually real wilting. It was really funny. And someone said to me that uh, he gives place an awful lot in the film to the king. I think it was his way of keeping his character balanced throughout the whole thing. Because he doesn't become the king. And Vigo's a bit like Aragorn in that way, that he doesn't really want to be the king. He takes on that kingship reluctantly, as Vigo does in, in real life. He, ta- he takes on the mantles of his success and esteem very reluctantly, which is somehow inexplicable for someone with talent in so many different areas. Published poet, artist, singer, photographer, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, just a sensational guy. He
8: thinks he's leading them to safety
11: i don 't think
6: it was ever understood why the Rohan are so important, and I think the Rohan are important because they are cavalry, and cavalry is the one thing that Saron can never have. He can never have lightning speed on a battlefield. he can never be able to hit any army in any way that's unexpected ultimately. He can only overwhelm on a battlefield that 's what inability to have cavalry means. And when you have a nation who is your Calvary, you can't win without that. So when they go to save the Calvary, they're going to save Middle-earth. That was always my take on the real hand. And that would have had to have
11: been much more embedded in, in the
6: way they went about making the movie than it was.
11: I think when he took off, when he does that little kick, I think he was probably sitting on a barrel. He did a lot of sitting on a barrel as well. Basil, who did the stunt riding for Ian, was a sensational rider. Very difficult thing to do, to ride without, not just without a saddle and stirrups, but without a bridle. Really frightening thing to do. And with a horse that was not completely in love with the filming process.
10: The Stables was another beautiful set. And all of these interiors were shot much later than the exteriors.
11: And this is uh, Uraeus, Viggo now, own, uh, he owns Uraeus, he couldn't bear to do him. And one of our great stunt riders, Jane, who doubled for both the ladies. There's only three ladies in the film, strange isn't it? And Jane doubled for both of them. And she knows, she kind of looks after Uraeus. Wonderful horse, Uraeus, very capable horse. And Vigo was really upset this scene wasn't in. It just explains so much about so many different things. It explains about his relationship with, with Miranda's character. It explains his relationship with his horse. It explains an awful lot about him. This character explains a lot about Vigo too.
10: Oh, this was a really hard scene to shoot. <laughs> it was one of those days where it was nearing the end. It was it was a scene that was on the cards for a long time and just kept getting rewritten and talked about and knocked back and rewritten and talked about and knocked back. It was a scene that I, I thought was eventually never going to happen. I was trying to find the scene. Where was the moment where Eowyn falls in love with Aragorn? Where is it? that she sort of crosses over that line. I think at first she's a little um, threatened by him, but also fascinated by him, but I was looking for the point where she actually becomes enamoured of him and we always thought it would be in this scene, but then that was sort of placing so much pressure on the scene. So when we came to do it with all the horses and the rewrites and everything, it was a really difficult day. We shot another scene after this, which ended up in the film, which is the scene with the sword with Aragorn, which I still sort of prefer, really, only because I think she comes across a little passive in this scene and I was interested in her being stronger than that. But it actually works a lot better than I I thought, this scene. I thought when we shot it, I thought, oh, I didn't think that it had worked at all.
5: Christopher Lee, what what an incarnation of evil he can be. He is such a rich person. As a linguist, you know, he can probably manage a basic conversation in probably 10, 12 languages.
8: Suddenly there's another ring which makes its appearance, which of course, Saruman Emetis's eyes, of course, that is the ring of Barahir. Now, Barahir was one of the great lords from the north in the first age, and he had this ring, and it was handed down over thousands of years, probably. And eventually it came into the possession of Isildur, which, of course, is never mentioned in the film. He's after the One Ring. So Wormtongue is saying, this belongs to Aragorn. And I think it's an important scene because it does show that Gandalf's resurrection, of which Saruman is well aware, of course, has made things very awkward for him. It does show that Wormtongue knows a little bit more than people maybe think he does. And he's having a bit of a go here at Saruman, saying, you know, you you may think there's only one ring that matters, but there are others. So there are so many different levels on which that scene is played. And it's all basically about
11: one ring, but not the one ring. The refugee, this refugee column. This is taken to getting everybody out of Edoras. I felt so much at home being a king of rohan because both my grannies were irish and they borrowed the look the celtic look so the red hair my son's got red hair so there's a the lot of red and fair-haired people around i felt so comfortable with everybody and the colors the greens the browns the golds different shades of gold which just wonderful we will return
10: i think this is probably the scene that i'm most proud of in the film basically because i fought for this scene We'd used some of the dialogue from this scene actually travelling towards Helm's Deep. It was the dialogue about what do you fear most, a cage, and I felt like it sort of didn't have much weight, where we'd done it and how we'd done it on the day. It sort of didn't have the gravity that it should have. And I felt in some way it was very um, indicative of her character. It sort of was, in, in some ways, a, a real way of showing who that she was. And, and so I suggested could we use that dialogue again somewhere. I just wanted to see her really stand up to the men in some way. I wanted to see her as an equal to Aragorn. And I felt that it worked well because the attraction came through that. I could see that this was really the the moment that she sort of began to fall in love with him because he does see who she is and he seems to believe in her in some way and he gives her respect and dignity, which is, I think, what she's craving The funny thing is that actually on the day it was one of those ones again that came in the night before but it was exciting because I thought oh this is a really good chance to actually do what I I felt Eowyn needed to do in the film somewhere to get that strong side of her across and when we came to do it we didn't have any stunt people available because they are all working on other units and so we didn't have anyone to help me with what the sword work would be or what we were going to do with the sword in the scene and so what ended up happening is we got a, a woman from motion capture a canadian woman and she gave me all the moves in there which i thought were really great we, they just sort of called her out of her office on the day and got her to come over and help us and it works really well and it was sort of completely impromptu
11: it wasn't difficult to look back and feel sadness about leaving this place for all, it's magnificently photographed. It doesn't do it justice at all, the real place.
6: <gasps> Look how creepy he is.
1: It's good to see more scenes with Grima Worm. Oh, on. his and, layers and with are coming the, out. With, with the beauty of, of that, that little um, handkerchief and, and kind of dabbing the yeah. wound. It
11: is a this is another untouched-up beauty shot of, of New Zealand. Not at Ediris, Not nowhere near Edoras. Essential qualities of Saruman,
8: that he is very still. He can exercise this enormous power, but there's still a certain definition to him, a certain stillness.
1: By the way, I literally thought that you were going to fall off the... Yeah, we were worried about... Because <laughs> there's you. a waterfall right here, and I, I thought you were going mean, to fall off a... the waterfall, or I didn't think you were going to fall, I this... thought he was going to
4: hurt his elbows, or his knees, or his head, or his face, or his nose, or his rocks. yourself about... I your mean, teeth, I, I thought you were going to slip and crack a thing, your teeth.
3: Though. I mean, I just couldn't feel a thing, my heart, my heart stopped working as soon as I hit the water, it was so... I know, you looked like me... It was just <laughs> freezing, it was freezing. All that delicate movement work that, you know, I kind of banged on about, you know, for golden just kind of went out the window as soon as I hit the water, it was just fighting for survival, basically. But the actual shot—I mean, that shot—the reverse of—I mean—that was the vista that we were trying to get. That was what they spent, kind of hosing down. That was a whole kind of morning's work of defrosting for an entire crew because yeah, it was all covered I in mean, snow. I hope, hope that's, yeah.
4: What I love is how, just as Gollum is coming out of the wickedness, and we're going into our darkness. I mean, that. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a teeter totter or a seesaw. I don't know what what kind exactly. of metaphor to use to explain like the multiplicity of dimensions in our the three of our oh, that's, relationship.
3: Right. that's absolutely right.
4: This was one of my favorite acting scenes in the movie. Just pure acting scenes with you and me, Elijah. I mean, I absolutely had a blast I had a, doing this. I had a
1: blast doing this as well, Sean. I just love this scene. I, th- I love the writing of this, and I love how it starts to establish... They were really writing dialogue for Sam in a way that they had never done before. And they were also writing dialogue for me that they hadn't really done before. Really? In-, in terms of confronting you and... Starting to establish yeah. the rift that's beginning yeah. between us. That's a
3: key thing for that. Oh, so yeah.
4: important. Well, you know what it was? It's just the scenes were exactly what they needed to be.
3: Well, we
1: working. got to
4: actually really
1: focus our energy on very specific moments and, and understanding. It was actually one of the first times for this relationship and the evolution of this relationship that we really got to focus and understand the various movements that that relationship has yeah. and how it changes. Yeah.
3: So this is this is the first scene you really get, obviously get inside his his head and Elijah's
4: hand isn't that fat and he wasn't stung by a bee that's a uh, it's an anamorphic it? lens I Logical. thought you were going to say it was a hand double the this great the, the best scene uh, in the movie
3: people who kind of watch the movie talk about this one quite a lot because it, again it's that split that's that split thing that that we we're all capable of doing and, and it's it kind of takes you by surprise I think you know that the, the camera really focuses on him in that way you know that it allows you in that you sort of get a sense of who Gollum is beforehand but the, for the first time you really kind of I mean, I could go on for days talking about this scene. It's it's just the fact that Fran wrote this incredible scene, incredible scene, Mm -hmm. and kind of gave it to me. And in the same way that you kind of nearly... Kind of die when you get when you get it off your facts. I, I yeah. felt like that too. And the yeah. fact that we, Fran really directed a lot of this. She was the real mentor. She she emotionally guided a lot of Gollum. And uh, we shot this as a, as a one scene. And and I kind of did both Gollum and Sméagol together as a theatrical piece. It was just like a like a, a three and a half minute, half minute kind of monologue. And then covered it you know on set. And then we covered it again in the motion capture. Again shooting it in one takes the whole thing. And then built it up gradually. And then kind of went in closer. I
4: remember the scene was originally kind of a, a kind of linear narrative sort of thing so the stylistic choice for Peter to keep cutting back and forth as though it's a scene between two people so that it's really yeah, clear in the audience's clear. mind yeah like I don't think it compromises any of what you were able to accomplish by going in and out of both simultaneously and at will but I think it visually I mean the, the way the camera pushes in and pulls out you really get a sense of these two people it just it's a perfect Commingling of the disparate parts of his personality, I mean,
3: and and also the animators caught really most accurately out of everything the exactly kind of what was going on. I mean, I mean, just to, to such a level that has never ever been achieved before. I think in terms of taking on you know taking from an actor's performance and and then magnifying it, amplifying it. I mean, they really work closely to the original the performance. There's a great bit of split screen footage showing showing yeah. kind of the acting, yeah. and, and, it's and worth uh, which at. Is, which, it's so which I think might well. End up. So anyway. Just kinda of the level to which Gollum has sort of seeped into the public culture. I don't know if did you see the Super Bowl this year? No. In the middle of the Super Bowl, there was a Saturday Night Live the of, the, of the Gollum schizophrenic scene, and Chris Kattan from Saturday Night Live did this whole thing about...
8: Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay, no, the, Raiders, the Raiders. Oh, that's
3: great. And it was kind of amazing, fantastic. really, because I was sitting there watching the Super Bowl... Awesome. And they copied the camera moves and everything, So, it was, oh, and, and, and he was made up, and he looked exactly like Gollum. And it was, it was just like, wow, wow that's... Wow. You know, it just... Just really, the le- the, 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 as I say, the level to which he's kind of sunk into, you know, people absorbing, absorbing yeah, like the, 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 yeah. the character, you know, it's yeah. quite f- it's phenomenal, really. Did
1: you see um, the episode of yeah. South Park? Th- yes, they, I saw they, that. Mac they parodied me. Lord of the Rings, and they made one of the characters into Gollum as well, and it was just <laughs> magic.
4: Even like that.
2: My mum's favourite character, Gollum, even though her son plays Mary, I mean, come on, is there any chance? Stupid
4: facts, My favorite character was Treebeard and then Gollum and when I read the books. Gollum's always been one of my favorite characters yeah. ever since The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah, me
3: too. Me too.
4: I just felt so bad for Gollum. I just felt so much sympathy for him.
3: Yeah. I think the whole child char- the childlikeness of him as well has really come out through uh, through the writing and through the animation and through well and the playing of it, I guess. But I mean that was something that that we were all. I mean, because Fran, obviously, Fran and Pete have got their beautiful children, and I know that Fran drew a lot f- from the childlikeness Definitely. of yeah. Billy and Katie and and me from Sonny and, and Ruby, and just that kind of loss of innocence is something I think really really rings true. And, and I think they've done that incredibly. Oh,
1: absolutely. It's going to be sad to see Smeagol fade away, actually. Mm. It's going to be heartbreaking. Mm. Because you do, you really do connect. And that's another thing I was so impressed with in the film. And not something I I really connected with while reading the script because I didn't know how it would would pan out. But the differences between Smeagol and Gollum and how very different they are. Sure. And how you can actually connect with Smeagol and feel this kind of... Mm disdain for and and fear of Gollum of as two very I different characters yeah. and And yet it's you the same all in love with Smeagol in this movie I, I was so impressed with how well that duality worked You know and how very distinct those differences are sure. as two very different characters and and how you can feel so very differently for both of them It's just I love that
4: We filmed this scene twice. I'm so glad we redid it, because the first time we did it, the way I was positioned in terms of body mechanics, I couldn't lift my head up. And it's such an important moment for people who love Sam and who love the book, because seeing an elephant for the first time, the mythological creature of an elephant, I've gotten letters from people. uh, One in particular that I have in mind that a neighbor of mine handed to me from a friend of hers that where she just talked about, and this was like a year and a half ago, how she couldn't wait to see the scene where Sam sees the elephant for the first time and like I got that letter and I had we had done it and I wasn't happy with how we had done it and then we went back for reshoots and Peter had this scene set up in the parking lot again the our side of looking at it that oh, moment. Sean. no one at home will believe and this. I remember and when I'm doing that I'm thinking about how important it is to that woman to who wrote to me saying one. how much she wanted to see that moment that's brilliant. I was a little I shocked that there were two Olifants. <laughs> I thought it was an oliphant. <laughs> I said there were two
1: oliphants. So it must be doubly impressed. And, and for those of you at home who are as impressed with the oliphants as I think all of us are, get ready for Return of the King because they're, they're coming back. There's quite a lot of oliphants in, in Return of the King, actually.
4: This was a tough sequence for them, narratively, to figure out how to bring Faramir in and yeah. how to tie it all together. I remember it was now a that, struggle it really that. It does
3: hinge around that close-up of him shooting. Yeah. The, yeah I mean, that was a, yeah. As you say, it was, it was a great Seeing idea. Seeing
4: the captain being a captain in action. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I
1: remember there was quite a lot of difficulty in ironing out Faramir's path and our connection to Faramir and how it was all going to play out. Come on, Sam. This dialogue I had the most difficult time with. <laughs> What did you keep saying? Well, the thing... I can't remember, but... Some of the time, you know, we would get these rewrites that would include some of the most obscure dialogue that was beautiful on the page, but not exactly easy to actualize. (laughs) And um, this was one particular day that I was... Just racked with nervous energy. I think energy. you were a
4: little hard on yourself. I don't think it was as bad for you as you're saying it was. I remember no, that day. No, and mate, I, remember I, was
1: in, like, I was in misery. I think I was I was putting too much importance on the dialogue and I was worrying about it too much, hence uh, why I kept bumbling it. But, ugh. Oh.
4: And I remember reflecting on We were all carrying the weight of the fact that figuring out this exact moment wasn't p- completely clear to everybody on how to do it. And one of the great things that Peter and Fran came up with was the balance between something that's pleasing to the contemporary ear in terms of how people speak and yet something that also captures that sort of historic or mythic quality or whatever it is. And every now and then, like you're saying, you get a rima dialogue that would be sort of myth-centric or old English-centric, and you sort of, whoa, getting your tongue in your teeth. (laughs) Ian would have had no
0: trouble with that dialogue, but you and I are, Yeah, that was one hell of a day. Hello, and uh, welcome back to this two
2: of the uh, cast. Commentary for The Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. I'm Don Monahan,
0: just settling in for another, what is it, nine or ten hours of this movie? Apparently twelve. Twelve hours. Yeah, put your feet up. Enjoy this. Here come the refugees. A
11: very short route for this. It looks like we're kind of in the middle of nowhere, going a long way, but in actual fact we were very compressed. Had to keep going back and kind of reshooting bits, make it look like we were kind of travelling. that's Brett falling off the horse
5: thank God I didn't actually have to do the fall off but um, I have done that on movies before
11: this is a lovely scene between uh, Théoden and Aragorn it does actually show another stage in Théoden's development explains to some extent why Théoden feels so guilty about the fact that he let his kingdom fall into disarray and he wasn't there for his niece ...because of his, his own weakness, which was something he couldn't have avoided... ...because when you're possessed by evil, then you, you're really you're not in control of things. And that was another kind of pointer... ...as to where Saruman's power had, had taken Edoras and everything about it.
10: <gasps> the stew scene.
11: Well, this is where he forces down some food, yeah.
10: I have to say, I was very happy when, when this scene was cut from the film. Um, it was one of those things where they were playing with with Eowyn's character and just sort of when there's so few women in the film to sort of play with some of the the more feminine side and the lighter side of her character. There's some good things in it because it, it talks about um, Aragorn's age and and some of his backstory and and that's good. I, I sometimes just find that Awen seems quite girlish in it.
11: Not good at cooking. <laughs>
10: it's good. Really?
11: <laughs> Very funny. Nice <laughs> one, <laughs> 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 <laughs>
10: <laughs> 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 We tried lots of different things with Aowen, and because she was one of the few women in there, I think they were interested in, in in exploring the story between her and Aragorn, the the whatever there is of a love story there and also interested in exploring the lighter side of, of Eowyn, the, the feminine side of her.
11: I think Eowyn is, is a really difficult role to play because of the, um, the conflicts within it. Basically, she wants to be Théoden's son, I suppose, the female version of that, not, not, to, be a ma- not to be a man, but to be a woman who stands up in her own right and can, can handle battles and... You forget sometimes the Rohan were horse people essentially, but fighters too. They were they were a, a warring nation. They'd they'd fought many battles in the past.
10: I was interested in in a woman who is attracted to somebody like Aragorn, who who is all these noble things that that she has always admired and and wanted for her kingdom, but at the same time. She's not one to give over that easily. I didn't think she should give over too easily.
4: I love the relationship between the two of them and Me how too. and how Arwin factors into it and in his mind. And
1: Without becoming a love triangle in the typical sense of the yeah.
4: word. No, it's like you're inside of Vigo's soul, and yet you're totally the pathos for her. It's it's a it's a pretty beautifully realized dynamic.
5: Doesn't she look so breathtaking? And I mean, he's—if he, ever there was a heroic look—I don't think—I uh, don't think Liv has ever looked more lovely than in this film.
7: Liv, I think, was the most movie starry of um, of the people to come down. And, and b- before meeting her, and it was—you know—she was the one that everyone was going, "Oh wow, you know, Liv Tyler's going to be in this." And um, I think I first met her in the in the makeup room. And I'd come in, she was already there, and you know this very beautiful but sort of charming young woman goes, oh, you know, hi, I, I'm Liv, how are you? And went, oh God, it's it's Liv Tyler, and um, we we I must admit we didn't do a lot of work together at all, um, but a few times I met her, she seemed you know very lovely.
10: There wasn't there wasn't sort of room to be starstruck, even. Liv, I remember thinking the first day that I arrived on set, she was also there, and um, I remember seeing her from a distance, thinking, "Oh, right, that's Liv Tyler. Wow, you know, she's a big star." And and I don't, I'm the sort of person who doesn't like to just go up and start trying to be chummy with the big stars and stuff. I think given them their space. There's so many people who who will come up to them and want to know this or that. That you know, I'll just let them have their space. But, you know, she came straight over to me and, and actually gave me this huge hug and said, oh my God, there's another woman here. I'm so glad, you know, we can hang out together. And and she sort of wanted to tell me all about what it was like working on it because, you know, for her, it, you know, she'd been there with all the guys and it was really like a big boys club. So, you know, right from the outset, people were, there was no kind of starry stuff. This
1: sequence actually turned out really nice. This is quite beautiful
4: what the primary reason that I leapt at the opportunity to uh, be involved with Lord of the Rings before I had ever seen of uh, the books before I even knew what the books were uh, was because my father had worked for Peter and Fran on the Frighteners and he came back and described this couple and this working relationship that was the most creative, Mm -hmm. most respectful, most artistic endeavor in a cinema context that he'd ever experienced. (laughs) Really? And he created in my mind, because I'm married and I love to collaborate with my wife and work with my wife, the idea that that was possible in them. And when my agent called me and said, Peter Jackson's doing the Lord of the Rings trilogy for New Line, I instantly thought, I want to go to New Zealand and be a part of what it was that my father experienced. Mm -hmm. And watching how... Peter as a real leader of men and women and a person who brought together hundreds of millions of dollars of of capital and resources and provided food, shelter, transportation, clothing, health care, welfare for thousands of people for years oh, you look at it like because that of his very imagination. Yeah. And so he has, as one of the requisite parts of his personality, a command presence yeah. he brings this kind of strategic powerful sense of himself and of what needs to be accomplished in terms of moving mountains and and fran has this not to be tri- i did play risk with her and she obliterated me so not to be trifled with in terms of her strategic mind but 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 her appreciation or appreciation for language and and fine art Mm, mm, mm. and the way that the two you know peter's love of world war ii movies and models and miniatures and blowing things up and firing guns and that kind of thing if anybody wants to know how i feel about what this process was about it's about those two human beings and what it was that they accomplished together and i think having communicated that idea over this tableau that we were just watching is well said yeah It's so true.
3: Beautifully timed.
11: We shot this in Queenstown, just across the lake from Queenstown in a place called Deer Park Heights. I have very fond memories of Queenstown. A short drive to work around the lake, crisp, clear mornings, and then set to fight God knows what, really, because we had no idea what, Of course, there were no wargs. There was just um, a, a digital imagination. I had no idea what they were going to look like, really. We had, we, they showed us drawings, but they didn't really do them justice. So basically, we had um, stunt people on barrels, <laughs> and we were—we'd we, knock them off the barrel and then turn around and stick our sword in something that didn't actually exist. This is Vigo. Vigo's got broken toes at this point, running down a hill the previous day, been kicking a helmet, and he'd broken two toes apparently. So he was in a lot of pain doing that, jumping around, running up and down the hill. And I'm sitting on quite a reluctant horse, really. And I'm quite reluctant, really. I'm reluctant to hit it. (laughs) Because I don't believe in the use of whips. There's Orlando looking at nothing. I'll put all this in afterwards, obviously. This is a great action sequence. You really
5: do believe that those wargs are a new type of... It doesn't look like a cartoon character.
10: See, watch this. It's going to stop me getting on the horse again. I really fought with Peter that day and said, please, can't you at least let me get out the sword or get on the horse so it looks like I've at least begun? But he wouldn't let me. I felt very thwarted, I think, just like she did. Always sort of, you know, stuck with the women and children.
7: You know, Miranda, um, she, uh, she came in, as one of the only women in an all-boys kind of story and um, really commanded her space and um, invested a
11: huge amount of herself. And I think um, I think it all comes through in her performance, you know? I had no idea this was going to happen. Extraordinary piece of graphics, that.
10: Some of this must have been so hard to shoot.
11: Um, our main focus at this point was to get th- past the camera and stop as quickly as possible, basically. That was, that was. Um, I mean, we were all frightened at this point. Yeah. But all good, clean fun. I mean, we went out to work some mornings really kind of frightened. The, the big problem is running a, running a horse at speed is it does take time to stop it. And we didn't, and you, have a, you need a runoff area. And, and because of the location, we didn't have much of a runoff area. Uh, and the runoff area was largely with the kind of terrain you've got there, which was grass, but inter- interspersed with, with rock, because the rock would come through, the come through, and so if you fell off, you, you, you fell on grass, but there was always a rock quite close by.
10: There was a lot of fighting, and the actors are doing their own fighting, and I think it was around the time that they were shooting this that Orlando actually came off his horse.
7: I landed on a rock and broke my rib, <laughs> which was kind of annoying, but I went and had it checked out, and I was on set again the next day, so it was fine. <laughs> Just part of the job.
5: I did have this big lump of pseudo dead horse dressed up like uh, a, a warg on top of me, and then the, a stuntman, and then, of course, another warg that comes uh, that comes on top of that. Uh, and I was trapped under it. And it was quite heavy, actually, and even more so when you start adding big stuntmen in uruk
11: or and This This bit here now, look. And there's no wog there, of course. <laughs> I'm just sticking my, uh, stick my sword into mid-air. So there a lot of that going on. No-one no was really quite sure what, what, what this was all going to look like at all. So we just had to trust the people that, um, that we were working with.
10: I mean, they were very lucky with things like injuries, because some of this was, it was pretty gung-ho. You know, the, you, you do your best with safety and things like that, but when you've got horses and, and all of that, there's, there's a certain element that you just can't predict
5: aren't they are incredible I think this is just the most incredible piece of animation I've ever seen those, those wards
11: that's great, now that, that, that bit when it just turns round and tries to get back and not fall over as it kind of wheels around is a wonderful piece of imagination uh, using, the, using the kind of your, your graphic imagination to, to make it as real as possible
5: acting is essentially the transfer of your imaginative insight into something physical to share it with other people. I mean, we, we've shown pictures of these things and we discussed the size of them and how, you know, how fast they would move and the, the the speed of our responses in relation to them and good actors, and there isn't a bad actor on this set, access their imagination so readily and so that it's you know that goes in and it's it just comes out through your fingers
12: really when you act